sounds like you're racing cancer. Like you'd be racing someone in a race and you're like, if I'm hurting this bad, you're going to be hurting at least this bad, if, yeah. if not worse. The moment that you like uh, realize that pain is your ally rather than your enemy and you weaponize that and you use it against your competitors and you use what it is that you personally are feeling as a gauge of the pain that you're inflicting on them, it's exactly the same thing. So that's, that's the way that I viewed it as though the deeper I could push myself into that state of discomfort, the harder I could push back, the more effort that I could, that I could um, put in. Um, not as though it would make a difference, because you don't cure cancer by running, you don't cure cancer by doing push-ups, you don't cure cancer by <laughs> whatever it was that I was doing to try to inflict pain on it. Um, but by doing that, you reminded that you're still there. Yeah, it was just a... You more than anything, you know. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and my guest this week is Tommy Rivers Pusey, aka Tommy Rivs. I'm not even sure how to set this one up, so I'll just tell you that it's a long winding and at times heavy conversation with someone that I deeply admire about life, death, cancer, identity, hope, potential, love, gratitude, and more that I feel privileged to have had in person and that I am honored to share here with all of you. We recorded this conversation the day after this year's Boston Marathon, which Tommy finished in six hours, 31 minutes and 54 seconds. For those of you who don't know, Tommy wears a lot of hats. He's a husband and a father, a philosopher and a physical therapist, and a mentor and inspiration to so many, myself included. He's also an incredible endurance athlete with a resume that's way too long to list here, but for context, in 2017, Tommy finished 16th at Boston in 218.20. Fast forward to the summer of 2020, and Tommy was fighting for his life in an Arizona hospital after being diagnosed with a rare and aggressive form of lung cancer. He spent weeks in a medically induced coma, endured multiple surgeries and numerous treatments, and lost 75 pounds over the course of several months. But he survived. Not only that, he's now in remission, regaining strength every day, and living a very full life, all of which we talk about in this episode. Before we dive in, a big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're looking for a workhorse to run most of your miles in, look no further than the Fresh Foam X 1080 V12. Just came out. Man, am I stoked for this shoe. Longtime listeners will know that the 1080 has been my go-to training shoe for the past few years, and the V12 will no doubt be the shoe that I put most of my miles on for the rest of the year. The 1080 V12 has the perfect blend of cushioning and responsiveness. It's lightweight. It transitions smoothly. It has the most streamlined fit to accommodate a wide variety of foot types, and it holds up to heavy mileage week in and week out. The Fresh Foam X 1080 V12 is available in both men's and women's sizes on newbalance.com or at your local run specialty retail store. Check them out and give them a try today. 
Also, thank you to the Wineshine Half Marathon and 3.9 Miler, organized by the nonprofit Napa Valley Marathon and Half Marathon, for supporting the show this week. The inaugural race, which starts and finishes at the Silverado Resort and Spa in Napa, will be held on July 16th, 2022. If you've never been to Napa, let me tell you, this is a great excuse to go. You'll get cool mornings great running conditions, and incredibly beautiful scenery. It's only about 25 minutes up the road from where I live, and I can vouch that it will be an experience like no other. After the race, you'll have the chance to sample some of the area's best varietals at the post-race festival. Registration is now open at wineshinehalfmarathon.com. Org. Also, your registration fee goes to a great cause as proceeds from the Wineshine Half Marathon and 3.9 Miler support Napa Firewise and the Napa Valley Farmworker Foundation. Enter the code MARIO, that's my name, all caps, M-A-R-I-O, when you check out for $15 off of your registration. Okay, this is a special one. It was a pleasure to spend time with this incredible man. Please enjoy my uninterrupted conversation with Tommy Rivers Pusey. Before we start talking and I start asking you questions, I just want to acknowledge the fact that we're here. Um, I'm really grateful for you being here, number one, not just in this room having this conversation with me, but just the fact that you're here. And I almost can't believe that we're having this conversation. So Tommy Rivers Pusey, thank you so much for joining me on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Yeah, man. Thank you. I'm uh, I'm stoked to be here too. (laughs) Yeah. We're having this conversation the day after the 2022 Boston Marathon. Your second marathon in less than six months. You kept things under the radar until the morning of the race. Knowing you as an athlete, you have an interesting history with the Boston Marathon. I've seen you run really well here. 2017, I believe. You ran 218 and were 16th in the race. And the last time I saw you in person, you don't remember it because you were in the race, but it was the top of Heartbreak Hill in 2019. I snapped a photo of you. I sent it to you afterward. And you wrote me back and said, man, I was deep in the hurt box when you took that photo. And yesterday was your first time back since then. Most people's first time back since then because the 2020 race, race was canceled. There was a race last fall. But I'd love to just get your perspective on the Boston Marathon in general, the significance it has to you, and then what yesterday's experience was like? Yeah, man, that's... Um, Loaded question. I apologize. No, I just, that's, that just sent me down memory lane. I haven't thought about all that in a really long time, but um, yeah, so Boston, I guess it was 20, 2017, the first mm-hmm. time I did it. Um I didn't know what to expect. I mean, that was my training leading up to the race hadn't been great. I actually had been in Europe for some work, um, like the month previous. And, um, it consisted of like these eight hour days, like fast packing through the mountains. And 
which is not marathon specific training by any means, you know, and, you know, going from town to town uh, with a good friend of mine, Caleb Schiff, he owns a, a pizza restaurant in, or a couple of restaurants in Flagstaff. He owns Pizza Cletta. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So Caleb and I were in um, Cinque Terre, like running between the towns. We spent a couple of weeks just just touring, like on foot, um, and trying to do some, like you know, I had in the back of my mind of like, oh, I've got a race in a few weeks, you know. So I was doing like strides and drills every day after these long race or these long runs. But I think we put in like 140 mile weeks, but like over like six to eight hours in a mm-hmm. day, you know. So very much not like marathon specific training, carrying like a backpack also, you know, and uh, got back home to Flagstaff, had about a week and a half to try to sharpen up and did a couple of workouts and a couple of long runs and showed up to Boston. And I I remember thinking, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to run like a 250 or a 215, you know, I had no idea and uh, started out running and just kind of waited for the the wheels to fall off and they just never did, you know, and I, I'd never been in a race like that where there's just so much collective energy and it's just such a, it's impossible. Like if, if you don't go out and blow your, blow your legs up and if you're receptive to all of the energy around you, if you're open to that, I think it's impossible to not have, maybe you won't run your fastest race, but it's impossible to not have a positive experience, yeah. you know? And uh, I really fed off of that. And I remember just thinking it was just so much fun. And, um, you know, cruise through, I didn't even know that they were called the Newton Hills at the time. I, I didn't look at the course <laughs> ahead of time. And I'd heard about Heartbreak Hill, but I didn't know when we'd passed it. I mean, it was like it felt really, really good, you know. And um, just kept waiting for, it's like, okay, is it going to be mile 22 or mile 23 or mile 24? Waiting for it to hit you. Yeah, waiting for my legs to blow up, and they just never did. And then, you know, got to the finish line, and it was just, I was just kind of in awe. I did, you know, it was, it was completely unexpected. And maybe that's why it was, I let myself have a good day, because I had no expectations for it, you know? And, uh, yeah, and that was, it kind of happened on accident, you know? And so I, I didn't know what to expect after that. And then I think it was 2019, the next time I raced it. Yeah, because I raced it in 2018, okay. and I remember being out on the course in okay. 2019. That was the year with the rain mm-hmm. where Yuki won. And in 18, right? yes, okay. correct. Yeah, And Des? Uh, Des won that yeah, year as okay. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so 2019 I came back. And this race, I mean, that time I did everything right. I mean, my training was like... Dialed. Dialed. And I was like, okay, I like hammered the the downhill workouts. You know, I made sure I, you know, in my mind I was doing everything to prepare for, you know, to have the durability to get through it and have legs on the on the last, you know, five or six miles. And, <laughs> and you know, mile 10, I got in and realized, you know, it was like, oh, it's not going to happen. And, you know, I already felt that my started in my lower legs and then worked up into my quads and then into my hips and it was it was agonizing because because I remember coming through you know the Newton Hills and and it's basically downhill after that you know to the finish line and if you have legs like you can really pick off everybody else that that went out too hard and I remember feeling trapped in my body like aerobically I felt great but just my legs were just just gone and uh (laughs) just the I guess the contrast between those two races, you know, 
and you know, seemingly doing nothing right in preparation for 2017 and things went well, and then trying to do everything right in 2019. And I just, you know, completely fell apart. But, you know, this one, what year is it? 2022. So it's been three years. Three years, yeah. Um, and this is all just, it's all just brand new, you know? I mean, I feel like going into summer of, 2020 um that's kind of when my <laughs> when my world as i knew it kind of fell apart and uh and then everything just restarted you know and i i see this now as um this is a different life you know this is a different body um i think about like the mayan calendar how like it's like a new cycle started over you know and uh i think you know i guess as i'm trying to give myself perspective and think about where I'm at and not get frustrated with how slow the progress is now. Um, I have to remind myself that I'm like <laughs> in the infancy of this new life, you know, mm -hmm. this new life is, this new body is only a year and a half old, you know? And uh, it's interesting because I, I feel like I've spent the first three decades, three decades of my life trying to learn you know, how to become successful as an endurance athlete. I mean, all, all aspects of it, like the mental aspects and emotional aspects and training philosophies and, um, you know, studying the human body and trying to master those concepts. And a lot of that I've been able to maintain, at least in terms of, like, theoretically. Um, and now I just have a new body to use those same concepts and, you know, apply it. And it kind of just feels like a mad experiment sometimes, you know? Yeah. And just to, I guess, just to see what's possible and see what my, my, my new potential is with this new, with this new opportunity, this new life, this new, this new body. And honestly, like more than anything, I'm just, it's just gratitude. I mean, I'm just so, it's just overwhelming. Um, People asked me out on the course yesterday, they're like, how are you feeling? You know, and I mean, the answer is like really shitty, you know, <laughs> but like, but more than anything, it's like, I'm just really, really grateful to be here. And I, I mean, that sounds trite because it's so simple, but I really am just, I'm just stoked to still be here. You know, it's, life is good. It really is. Oh, man. <laughs> You surprised people by showing up to the New York City Marathon last November, completed it in something over nine hours. When did you decide that you were going to target Boston next? Gosh, that's a good question. My, um, <laughs> my brain doesn't work very good anymore, and uh, <laughs> it really doesn't. Um, and dates... Dates are really hard for me, I'm trying to think in terms of like a calendar. I always forget what month we're even in, but, um, you know, it was something that early on when I first got sick, I remember thinking before, <laughs> before I realized how slow recovery is and, and how daunting this whole process was, um, I remember thinking like, okay, well, within a year I'll be able to run again, you know? And, uh, 
and within two years I'll be able to race again. And maybe within three years I can get back to where, where I was before. And I mean, it's <laughs> it's just a pipe dream. I mean, that was the reality is that it's been completely, completely different. I I guess um, some of that, you know, I mentioned like having an understanding of how bodies adapt and progress and, you know, we're able to build strength and fitness and durability over a specific period of time. Um, back in that old life, BC is what I call it, <laughs> before cancer, before COVID, um, I, uh, I tried to maintain like general fitness to where like any race, any distance, whether it was 100 miles on the trails or, or a road marathon was... 16 to 20 weeks away, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so in my head, it's like, okay, you know, if you put in for me, it was like, I need 1400 miles over 10 weeks. Yeah. If I can do that, then I know that that's a solid, <laughs> a really solid base that then I can, um, you know, sharpen up and get ready for whatever it is that I, that I want to do. Um, and now time is just, the concept of time, I think that's the biggest thing. The concept of time in terms of how it relates to progress and change and adaptation and those cycles of stress and rest and, you know, all of these things that we the preach as, you know, coaches and things like that. Um, it's just slowed down, you know, so much. And so learning to accept that new <laughs> concept of time and, and realizing um, that it's just a completely different game now. Um, that's been a huge, I guess that's been a huge component of like accepting this new normal. Um, and so after New York, New York came up and it was just something that, um, you know, the opportunity presented itself and I thought, well, why not? And, uh, and more than anything, what it was, was just a chance to, I, I thought of it as like a, a stamp in time and space, you know, as a chance to say to myself more than anyone, um, like, I am here. Like, this is where I am. Uh, a declaration, you know? Um, Did you need to say that to yourself? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And an affirmation, an honest evaluation of this is where I am right now. And that's daunting. That's hard to do. Um, it, it takes it takes courage to do that because at least for me, um, because although I never, my identity was not as a runner. It was running was something that I did, mm -hmm. but, but at least the way that I perceived myself, um, it wasn't the thing that I wanted to be. If I was reduced down to one thing, that's not what I wanted to be known as is running, you know? And, you know, whether for better or worse, when you spend that much time doing it, you don't realize it, that even if that's not your intention, that, that does shape part of your identity. Mm -hmm. And that does shape part of your, even your concept of self-worth. And, um, and so sometimes it's daunting to show up and be honest, to make, you know, an honest uh, evaluation of where you are, um, because it's so far from maybe what you once were. And so it was a chance for me to, more than anything, just try to let go of any ego that remained and just um, 
show up and make an honest declaration to myself, this is, this is where I'm at right now. You know, I am here. Meaning, like, if I were to put a, a time stamp on that, on that time and space, November, oh, I don't remember the day it was, but November 2021, mm -hmm. New York City Marathon, nine, I don't remember the time, nine hours and 20, 30-something minutes. That was the, you know, stamp in time and space. And that served as a chance to look at that honestly and evaluate that and see that for what it was with the hope and expectation that six months down the road, I could look back and say, <clears throat> I was there, you know, but today I am here, you know, and, and if I hadn't shown up and done that, then <laughs> Boston yesterday would have been less meaningful because it would have been the first time that I'd had, I guess, the courage to show up for myself and say, you know, I am here. It would have been the, it would have been the first um, stamp in time and space, and it would have said six hours and 30 minutes. And that would have been... Because if that had been the first time, um, I wouldn't have been able to have seen the progress from mm -hmm. November of last year until now. And... Because of that, I mean, I think that that's a huge, it's an important step in anybody's journey towards progress, uh, is having the courage to show up and say, you know, this is where I am right here, to be honest with yourself, so that you can then look forward um, to where you hope to be down the road. And you hope there's progress, you know, you hope that it's an improvement. And in this case, it was. And, you know, I think it was... Went from nine hours, nine and a half hours to six and a half hours, which means like I only have to do two more of these, and I, you know, <laughs> that's the fastest time in the world, you know. Dude, <laughs> right. you're the only person that I know who negative split yesterday. Did you know that you did went I, you I went three eighteen and three thirteen, I believe, off the top of my head. I was oh, looking nice. at it last night, uh, and I was like, son of a gun, of course, Riz is the only person who no. negative split Boston that I'm aware of. Scott Fobble ran a great even split, but you negative split. Dude, can we talk about Scott's race for a second? Let's do it. Oh my gosh. I was like out on the course, and that's the worst part about, um, that's sometimes the worst part about running the same race as like your, your heroes and your idols, and Scott's like... You know him from Flag. I do, yeah, and and I mean, not great. Like we're not like you know besties or anything, but like I, you know, I had a chance to uh, to do some training runs with uh, mostly the female team, Kellen Taylor and Steph Bruce, and um, you know, and some of the some of the different athletes throughout the years that I was there, and. And I would, you know, usually it was like, hold on as long as I can before I get dropped by either of them out on Lake Mary Road. But, you know, Scott would be out there doing his workouts. And and uh, in flag, like, a couple of times a week, there's usually an opportunity to run with, you know, everybody gets together on, on long runs or um, maybe during different runs during the week. And so, um, you know, you get a chance to know each other and... Um, because I worked uh, after I graduated grad school, um, I worked on bodies, and so I had a chance to work on a lot of athletes and flag staff, and so I got to know athletes that way, you know. And um, 
And he's always been somebody that <laughs> he's just the epitome of um, quiet, humble work. Uh, he's a workhorse, you know. There's a lot of show ponies out there, and he's a workhorse. And um, <laughs> it's it was <laughs> out on the course yesterday. Um, I kept wanting to get updates from what was going on in the front of the race. You know, I knew Steph was racing also, Steph Bruce, and I wanted to know how she was doing. And um, but those two specifically, I was wondering how how. Uh, how Scott was running and, and how Steph was running. And um, I guess Scott's in Boulder now. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was when I saw the results I, <laughs> and how close he was, you know, I mean, the next two finishers right in front of him were just maybe four or five seconds. Yeah, it was tight. And uh, man, I'd love to go back and watch it because I, I still haven't been able to. But um it didn't surprise me at all. I mean, everybody's been waiting for that. Everybody knows that he's been capable of that. He's been capable of that for, for four years, you know, and it just happened to, I, I'm assuming it just happened to come together for him. But, man, I I was stoked when I saw that. that yeah. Was, that was really cool. That's probably more than anything. That That's what got me more excited than anything yesterday. But I was pumped to see that result for him, and I haven't talked to him yet, but I know he's just, had a rocky stretch the last three years really since he ran that 209.09 here three years ago and because of that performance there were a lot of expectations on his shoulders going into the olympic trials and yeah. then coming out of it and to see him be able to bounce back in yeah. that way and i mean as bummed as i was to see him step away from Nazali and go in another direction. I respect that he knew he needed to do that sure. and gave up a sponsorship and bet on himself. And it really paid off for him yesterday. And he is just such a, a workhorse. I mean, just yeah. grinds, grinds, grinds and a tenacious racer. He was in like 22nd place, I think, at halfway and then yeah. finished seventh. And if the race were you know, another two tenths of a mile longer, he might have been fifth. Um, right, yeah. The way that he was charging home. Yeah, that's what I love about. I mean, watching both both Steph and and um, Scott is that they're both just so gritty, so gutsy. You know, mm -hmm. growing up in in Oregon with um, <laughs> everybody's chasing you know, the spirit of Steve Prefontaine and, and you grow up thinking that that's the only way to race. And, right. you know, and then seeing people on the world stage um, willing to challenge anybody. I mean, they don't, it doesn't matter if they're a world record holder, if they're the best in the world. Um, Steph and Scott, both, you know, they'll, they'll throw down with anyone. And that's, that's incredibly inspiring for me. And, Anyway, I hope I can go back and, and watch it because I'd love to actually see how that race played out for both of them. But they're definitely um, the epitome of of grit and guts, you know. I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago. You mentioned how going into New York, marking that place in space and time, how it was scary ahead of time to actually do that and accept where you were in November 2021. But once you did, once you covered that 26.2 miles and crossed the finish line, what did that 
unlock for you? Oh man. Um, <laughs> honestly, it was sometimes I want to say like a humbling experience, but it wasn't a humbling experience. I knew exactly where I was. You know, I, I, it felt like an honest effort. And, and by that, I mean, sometimes in, in endurance athletics in general, but in, you know, marathon racing and, and ultra running, um, there's this culture of, <laughs> at least among some of the elites, um, you know, myself included, when, when I had a chance to do that, of, of dropping out of races, you know, when things aren't going well. And I remember it used to really bother me if I had had a really good race and there was somebody that, on paper, you know, based off of results was a way better runner than me. And if I had passed them, you know, if I was having a better race than they were, and then they dropped out, it used to really bother me because it it felt like the results weren't honest. You know, that 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 I had earned the right to show up on the results ahead of that person. And vice versa. You know, if if I dropped out of a race, I felt that it lacked integrity to drop out if I was if if it wasn't because, you know, it I was doing something that I was going to, you know, injure myself or, mm -hmm. um, if I simply just dropped out because I just wasn't having a good day. Um, I felt like the people that beat me had, had the right to be there in the results in front of me and have my name on there. You know, I, I remember thinking in, you know, the world of professional cycling where there's a lot of etiquette there and there's a lot of mind games that go on and there's a lot of insults that take place through these statements that they'll make where, uh, you know, a cyclist, the biggest insult that, <laughs> that they could give to another cyclist is, is to drop out or to slow down right before the finish line just to not have to stand on the podium with that person just because they don't respect them enough to get up on the podium next to them, you know? Just stories of, like, back <laughs> in the wild west days of, you know, the 90s and the early 2000s within, like, the professional cycling and, and all the games that were played, you know? Um, it would make me think of those kinds of things, you know, that, um, that people earn the right to be ahead of you in the results if, if they show up and they, and they perform on the day and, and you owe them that right for them to be ahead of you in the results. And, um, it's <laughs> kind of a tangent, but, but what I mean by that is that in New York, um, I needed to see, you know, I needed an honest uh, assessment of where I was. And I, <laughs> I think I finished, I think only three people finished behind me. Um, <laughs> my, uh, my dad made fun of me for that after <laughs> he said, um, I used to dabble in like long distance triathlon and I, I had a chance to race at Kona one year and he said, <laughs> he said, uh, so it's kind of like the opposite of Kona. He's like, I think that you got out of the water in, you know, like 2,000th place and ended up passing like, you know, uh, over a 1,000 people during the run. <laughs> He's like, what did it feel like to be passed by 14,000 people? I was like, thanks, Dad. <laughs> anyway, but I mean, it was, it, was a, it was a humanizing, it was a humbling experience, you know, but it was 
I knew that that was everything that I had on that particular day. And more than anything, it just served as a, a reminder that, well, there's, <laughs> it can only go up from here, you know? It can't get worse. And uh, that's a liberating feeling when you let go of any expectations or any preconceived notions of where you should be, you know? Um, it's interesting to hear you say that because you just said that not too long ago about that Boston race in 2017. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess. It's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's odd how, and I'm guilty of this too, like how we will like in the world of endurance athletics, we'll, we'll speak about people, we'll, we'll reduce them to a time, you mm -hmm. know? We'll say, oh, so-and-so is a, fits a male marathoner, so-and-so is a 230 marathoner, or so-and-so is a 214 marathoner, or so-and-so is a 208 marathoner. And if you're familiar with that world, that, that is a world of difference between those individuals. Um, And it's as though we like reduce their value as a human being to what their PR in in a marathon is, and uh, <laughs> it always bothers me when people do that. Or it used to bother me when people would do that. But um, I guess <laughs> realizing that um, that now you know I'm a nine twenty-six marathoner. <laughs> <laughs> and as of yesterday, a 6.30 marathoner, and what that means, you know, and and realizing that it's like, um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's just, uh, I guess nothing other than it's just, it's just interesting to reflect on that. And uh, <laughs> I guess maybe that's not the best way to to reduce each other, you know, if we're going to. Yeah. <laughs> Did it feel different going into Boston yesterday versus New York because you had already put down that initial place and tie that marker in time as you had described it? And like you said, there's nowhere to really go but up from there. Did that help take you know some of that pressure off or make it less scary before you stepped up to the start line? Yeah, I think so. I. The other thing is that, you know, once you do a nine-and-a-half-hour marathon, you, you really don't care. I mean, after that, it's just kind of like, well, whatever, you know. This is not um, this is not what I'm going to be defined by. This is no longer my identity. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so it really was just a chance to just to show up and just see how much that I had improved. And um, I'm really really fortunate in that this uh these setbacks that i've had over the last couple of years i mean they've been significant but um but i i i i wrote about this a little bit before i i started the race yesterday um like i i really am uh <clears throat> one of the lucky ones you know i mean it's uh that world of cancer is, um, it is so hard and, uh, it's so hard for so many people. I, there's not anybody that, um, 
isn't affected by that disease. Um, and uh, it's um, it's just not fair. It's um, it's so cruel, and um, nobody nobody wins in that world. It um, it destroys indiscriminately people's lives. Um, people's dignity uh, just completely shatters their entire worlds. And uh, I think about um, my experience with that and how, how lucky I am um, and how lucky I was personally to be the one in the bed rather than sitting next to the bed next to somebody that I love and uh, that sense of grief and helplessness and imagining if it was gosh one of my kids one of my daughters um, and that is the reality for so many thousands of families right now like this very moment and um it's not all happy endings. Um, <laughs> and so I get overwhelmed by that. And I, uh, this is not a sob story. This is, um, I am, I hope that I'm never blind to uh, the realization of just how incredibly uh, lucky I've been through all of this. And, um, This is a, a cancer is you know one of the aspects of humanity that um, everybody at some point will be affected by, whether it's themselves or whether it's a loved one or a friend. Um, but there are so many aspects of just this human experience that we share that are just equally, if not more, heartbreaking and. Um, and I'm lucky because this is, if and until it comes back, um, this is not a degenerative disease. In my case, this is regenerative, which means that this isn't ALS, this isn't um, Parkinson's disease, this isn't multiple sclerosis, this isn't something that I know that will it will get progressively worse. It's something that I know will get progressively better, you know, if and until it, or if and until it, <laughs> or if it comes back. Um, and if and when it does, that's something that, you know, I will have a plan and, and we'll approach it and, and try to fight it the same way that we did the last time. But um, this, is, this is regenerative. It's not degenerative. The, the worst days, the hardest days are hopefully behind me. And that means that in the future, only better days that the hardest parts I've already gone through and that it only gets better from here. And that is, um, gosh, I just can't express how deeply I feel the gratitude that, that I've been so, so lucky. And, um, 
But there are so many people that are going through, that have gone through, that continue to go through so much worse. And, you know, this got a lot of attention and a lot of... Um, a lot of publicity. Um, but that's not because it's the toughest struggle that anybody's ever gone through. I mean, this is... Uh, it's a humanizing experience. This is what we go through, you know, as humans, as, as, as individuals, this is our shared human experience is mm -hmm. that type of struggle, that type of suffering. And I, I just honestly feel lucky that I, I'm still here. And, uh, this is, <laughs> there are a lot of heroes in this story, but it's, <laughs> it's certainly not me. It's, um, the nurses and the physicians and my family and um, Steph <laughs> and uh, the tens of thousands of people that supported my family and showed love towards my family. Um, and then the, I don't know if it's several dozen times or a hundred times that my life was saved individually as well as collectively through that team of you know healthcare professionals and the resources that were that were given during a pandemic when they shouldn't have um the manpower the intellect the beautiful minds and the incredible technology that you know came together and by some miracle i'm still here i mean i i'm just <laughs> honestly just blown away the more i learn about it the more i'm just full of gratitude and realize how how privileged I am. I mean, this, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's daunting to think about just because there's so much, so much gratitude. Well, that gratitude emanates from you just being in your presence right now. I mean, I can, I can feel it. I think people listening to this can hear it in their ears. Those who have followed your story, whether it's stuff that you've shared or that Steph has shared or your brother, whoever it may be, makes it relatable. Whether someone's gone through something similar to you themselves or a loved one of theirs, we've, we've all been affected by it. I've been there, you know, I've been there as well. And thinking back to 2020, late that summer, early in the fall, when, when you were in the worst of it, you were in a coma for a period of time. It just leaves me like speechless right now, but it, it was really beautiful to see just people come together and certainly support you and support your family. But I think also to, you know, just show the, the goodness of humanity and what we can do when we rally together. And I think there was a, a strength that came from that. I think you certainly benefited from it as you were trying to recover from this, but I think it gave people who were in a similar spot, like their own strength, their own hope to make it till tomorrow, to keep fighting for, you know, another day. And I mean, as I said to you before, the mic's here, it's like, man, it's, it's so good to see you. Like, just grateful that you are here. I can feel it just being in, in your presence, like, you know, that, that gratitude and, um, gosh, thank you for saying that. Yeah. This, this whole experience for me has been 
it's been a nightmare, but at the same time, it's been, it has been just so incredible to see just our potential greatness as human beings. I have talked about this before, but I, all we hear about is the negative aspects of humanity. I mean, that's what's in the press. That's what's, that, that's what makes the headlines all the time is just how broken and crooked and <laughs> the scandals and the drama and the, the failures. And I don't know what, there must be some, some deep rooted human need where <laughs> we somehow feel less shitty about ourselves if we can somehow highlight the the negative aspects of other people's humanity mm -hmm. but we're addicted to it as a culture and it just um but seeing how the potential that we have for goodness and and greatness and every day i mean and not just individually but collectively and seeing I mean, that's what I love. Honestly, that's what I love about marathons. I, if, if, you, if you've lost hope in, in humanity, like, come, come to a marathon. Like, come to a major marathon and watch. And it's impossible to not be moved by that. And everybody's out there for a different reason, but it's, it's all with the same intention, it's the same declaration that um, declaring to themselves and to everyone around them that they are strong, that they are powerful, that, they're, that they have the ability to, to do really difficult things and that they have the character and the grit um, to overcome those negative aspects of our humanity. And I mean, that, that really is, it serves as a microcosmic view of what we're capable of as human beings. Um, and you see that in the supporters, you see that, you know, the spectators, the fans, the race directors, the thousands of volunteers. I mean, yesterday was, it was a nice day. It wasn't snowing like the day before, but it was cold out there and it was windy out there. And there's thousands of volunteers out there and nobody is handing them snacks all day, you know, and encouraging them. And yet they have smiling faces and they're out there encouraging and sharing their energy. And not to get too like metaphysical about this, but you know, if people don't believe that it's possible to transfer energy from one individual to another, like again, come to a marathon. Go to a marathon. Go I to agree. a marathon and experience that that symbiosis. I mean it's like the runners are out there, they're pouring their whole souls into what they're doing, and that emanates from them, and the spectators see that, and like mirrors, they reflect that right back at the runner, and this cycle just builds and builds and builds, and it's one of those things that, like a positive feedback loop in physiology, it just, it just gets more and more powerful and shines brighter and brighter and brighter until, like, literally the streets are glowing i mean when you're out there like seeing it in people's eyes and people's faces and um and just that gosh um just that 
I don't know what else to call it except for just human spirit, that pure human spirit. It's hard not to be moved by it. Yeah, it's it's just, it's pure love and pure goodness in, in its essence. And there's this, I guess there's this notion that has always bothered me about endurance athletics. There, I guess athletics, I shouldn't say endurance athletics because that's where the caveat is, the, the asterisks that people think that... Um, People think that aggression and hostility is is this that that's the driving force behind competition. And you come to something like this, something like an endurance event, and you realize that it's the complete opposite of that. It's it's love, mm-hmm. it's gratitude, it's um, it's seizing the awareness that. <laughs> how incredible it is that you have that moment to be a part of that, um, whatever it is, that movement. And, uh, and gosh, that, if you can, if you can channel that, if you can harness that, I think about the greatest athletes in the history of the world. I think about specifically like Ayla Geber Selassie, like the Ethiopian that, you know, he dominated endurance athletics for so many years. Um, Kipchoge, um, they all constantly they're smiling they're kind they interact you know they they they're not too busy to you know take a picture with a little kid you know they're not too they're not too important or self um interested to to stop and acknowledge um the volunteers and the race directors you know and i think that that's that's the secret you know that's the that's the reason why they're able to be so successful because they've they've tapped into that that source of love and energy and motivation i mean you can call it whatever you want it's the same thing it's that it's that pure (laughs) human essence i guess in its greatest form but yeah that's what i love about it i mean that's that's what that was yesterday for me was just being able to be a part of that and see that and you can't help but get carried along in all of that that's really beautiful, man. And I second everything that you said there. And as I was listening to you, I was thinking back to the situation that you were in the second half of 2020. I mean, we're height of the pandemic. Our world is shut down. Races aren't happening. And I was thinking about yesterday. I was at the Boston Marathon watching. I was on the course in Framingham. I came into to Boston. So I, I was observing this. And while you were going through your greatest struggles, I, I was one of the observers just kind of watching it, like paying attention to like how, how you, the, the competitor, were doing, how you were dealing with the different obstacles being thrown your way, but also just watching everything going on around you, the generosity of people who are helping your family, the doctors who are helping you to survive your family coming together to support one another to help get everyone through i mean i couldn't go watch a marathon then and not that i i I wouldn't want to watch that but that what was happening and as tough as it was to to hear about your status at the time and and where you were and how the prognosis looked i mean you had mentioned this a minute ago it was also just like really beautiful to to see people come together, to see you fighting as hard as you could. And it's like, those are the same things that I love about like watching a marathon and what it did for me at that time. And what yesterday did for me watching everyone along the course is, you know, you, 
it fills you with hope. Like it just, it really like fills you with a, a spirit to go out and do something special yourself to go live your life to the fullest, to go help someone else out and, you know, offer, you know, offer a hand. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's, as you were just describing that, I mean, that's what was kind of going through my, my head right now. And I'm like, man, it's just like, we're all, we're all just, I've said this before. Like, I, I think at the end of the day, like, why are we here? I think we're here to help each other out, to help each other, take that next step forward to help each other get through the day. And I mean, I think that's what we saw along the course yesterday. And that's what we saw when you were going through the worst of your struggles. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, beautifully said. I, I couldn't agree more. I, whether it's a marathon or whether it's, you know, this collective movement, um, supporting people, supporting a group of people supporting a country, supporting mm -hmm. whatever it is. Um, I think what it does is it shows us what we're, we see in others what, what we're capable of, right. what our potential is as, as human beings. And, and when we see that, you know, um, I, I think a lot about how, how crisis is contagious. Um, you know, if there's somebody that's, that's freaking out in a room, people seem to raise the collective level of angst to match whatever that is. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you know, kindness is contagious and compassion is contagious. And, um, and, and when we see that, it, it reminds us of what we are capable of as as human beings and and where our i guess where our true potential lies and and it it serves as a i guess as a way to just check ourselves and and question whether or not we're living up to our true potential as human beings you know and and i i mean that in 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 every sense i mean whether that's whether that's an athletic achievement whether that's something that you know, our career, our family, you know, whatever that is, um, seeing other human beings shine. I mean, I think about the, the Olympics are entertaining, you know, but the, but, but the Paralympics, I mean that like watching that, like that, and not to say that the Olympics aren't inspiring, but, but it, but it's different, you know, it's like, okay, what, what are, what are people able to accomplish, um, given all of the setbacks, all of the hardships and, you know, being able to see something like that. Um, and a marathon like the Boston marathon where everybody is out there together, you have, you have people that have significant, um, physical limitations. Um, you have survivors of the bombings in 2013 and people out there on the course, you know, competing alongside the very best in the world. And then, you know, the, the people's race, you know, the 30,000 other competitors that are out there and everybody, that combination, that culmination of all of those different um, efforts coming together and being able to see something like that. Um, I mean, it reminds us of what we really are, are capable of. And then, you know, everybody leaves that moved with a new determination, a new outlook, and a new hope for 
what it is that they, you know, hopefully will will work towards down the road. You know, and and that's that's kind of what that served for me yesterday. Was this is where I am right now, and uh, and hopefully six months from now, um, there will be progress. You know, and uh, yeah, I mean, I there's got to be. You know, <laughs> well, take me down that road on paper yeah. as a marathoner yeah back in november you were nine and a half hours yeah or so yesterday you were six and a half hours that improvement is very perceptible it's just simple math i was here now i'm here where are you right now let's dig a little bit deeper than that just not only as a marathoner who who does these things and seeks improvement as you know you do more of them but just like where are you right now in terms of your your health your mindset your outlook versus where you were let's just go a year back from now because i know from your story a, a year back from now you were walking two miles at a time with a walker and needing five minutes in between and yesterday you completed a marathon six and a half hours straight fill me in like where where are you at today april 2022 oh man yeah that's really interesting to think about um yeah so a year ago if i go back a year it was that it was uh we were living in scottsdale and i was receiving treatment i just finished up uh sixth round of chemo and I it said that I was in remission there wasn't any cancer that was detectable um I wasn't a viable candidate for a bone marrow transplant um you were just so weak because my weight was so low um and my lung function was was too poor that that they knew that it would that I wouldn't survive it if I had one and so the greater risk at that time was the bone marrow transplant was a more likely fatal um had a more likely fatal outcome than just not doing anything and just waiting for cancer to come back. Uh, at the same time, like the the likelihood of of relapse uh, was and and still is really high. Uh, and so, if and when I do relapse, um, <laughs> the whole goal since then has been to regain weight and regain uh, uh, lung capacity and. And so that's been my objective more than anything, like with, with training. I mean, I, I, these events are, are great. You know, they're a great opportunity to show up and have something to work towards. But, but my training has been with the intention of building back a body that would be ready and capable to go through uh, even more intense chemo um, in preparation for a bone marrow transplant in the event that, you know, I relapsed and... Um, and the way that that started, it, it was, you know, learning how to move my fingers again and learning how to move my toes again and learning how to sit up in bed. I, I know that sounds really strange, but after being, after being, um, on my back for so many months, um, everything shifts. You're <laughs> the the fluid and the crystals that make up your vestibular system in your in your inner ear that regulate your balance that um regulate 
you know, your sense of um, up, you know, what's up and what's down and, mm. and left and right. And, you know, being able to maintain your eyes on the horizon, all of that shifts, all of that readjusts to being horizontal for months and months. And so you have to slowly train your body to be able to sit up again without feeling just this overwhelming sense of uh, the only thing I can, the only way I can describe it is just terror. Like your, your body goes into this state of just panic um, from just sitting up and you're, um, I experienced something called orthostatic hypotension, which basically means that because of the way that my body was positioned, my blood pressure would drop like significantly, like and instantaneously, and then my heart rate would go up. So changing position, my heart rate would go up to, you know, 180 or 190. Uh, my blood pressure would drop and, uh, you know, all the sirens would go off. And um, And with that change in blood pressure and that change in heart rate, also, there's a shift in the oxygen and carbon dioxide gradient within your blood, um, which triggers this fight-or-flight sense to where you feel as though you're under, um, that there's this looming threat to your life, but you can't identify where it's coming from. Um, it's the same panic state that somebody experiences when they're being waterboarded because they they're not getting enough oxygen into their blood and they're not getting enough carbon dioxide out and it it creates this this overwhelming sense of panic and i know that sounds like hyperbolic but it the idea of sitting up for 30 seconds in bed was just absolutely terrifying i mean it would bring me to tears i would beg i would say i can't i can't do that today that's too much like that's that's too daunting to sit up and uh so pushing forward through that and literally training as if i was doing running intervals like 400 meter repeats like the most grueling kind of intervals that you could imagine and it consisted of sitting up in my bed for like five seconds or something up to 30 seconds and then laying back down mm -hmm. and then bringing the bed up to 30 you know it was a bed that like it had the ability to you know um become more and more upright. It was uh, like mechanized. And so I would sit up and then I would come back down and then I would sit up and come back down. And that was, that was really some of the most traumatic experiences I've had in my life was trying to teach my body again to not panic in the same way that like if you're holding, if you're holding a child underwater and telling him like, no, you're fine, you know, I'll let you come up when I want you to come up, but just, just trust me and stay under. I mean, it, it was the same type of feeling, you know? Um, just terrifying. And, and so slowly, slowly, slowly over weeks and weeks and weeks, finally having the ability to sit up in bed. And the whole goal of sitting up in bed was so that I could relearn how to swallow. I, I, I couldn't swallow. I'd been fed through a tube in my stomach and I had a, a trach that went through, um, through my throat. And, uh, in order to be transferred out of the ICU, I had to pass what was called a swallow test, where I had to prove that I had the ability to, to swallow, swallow without, mm -hmm. uh, without having food or water go into my lungs. And so that was also an incredibly daunting process. And it took weeks, and I had to work at it. Um, and eventually I, f I passed that, that test. Um, and I was able to be transferred out of there. And... Um, and from there, I was able to learn how to swallow again. So trying to eat solid foods 
And um, gosh, it sounds so simple, but that that took weeks. That took months. Um, I still cough all the time, you know, because everything's still so scarred up. Um, and then once I was able to eat food, um, then there was a possibility to actually start to put on some weight. It sounds so easy. It's like, well, you know, why can't you just, I'd lost 75 pounds. It's like, we'll just eat food. And it's like, that sounds really simple, but um, chemo affects everything in your gastrointestinal tract, starting at your lips and tongue all the way down um, your throat into your stomach, into your small intestine, large intestine, everything, every round of chemo in the same way that you lose all your hair, you lose the skin cells, um, epithelial cells. They're the cells that line the inside and the outside of your body. Everything sloughs off. And so trying to eat food became just this r ridiculously daunting task because it, it tastes different. Um, you know, you end up, <laughs> you end up throwing up everything that you try to eat anyway. Just, you're so nauseous that it's, it's just so daunting. Like given the choice you would choose to starve to death rather than to go through that. Food, yeah. You know, and so slowly forcing myself to do that and learning how to do that. And, um, you know, Steph would, <laughs> we'd, <laughs> I would have these cravings, you know, I was like, okay, I need to, I could eat this or I could eat this. And, you know, after a couple of times, you, you realize like, okay, um, you're going to have to try a couple of options because what you imagine tasting, you know, like suitable in your head, it gets there and your your taste buds are completely altered. And so we'd order like um, five entrees, you know, and take a bite of each of them and none of them would work, you know. And so Steph jokes that she gained weight during all of this because we, we'd order takeout every night, you know, and it would be it would be enough food for an entire family. But um, so that process, slowly beginning to walk, using a walker, like you said, um, and then from there, just walking a little bit more each day um, and you know, learning how to do a push-up again. That was, I remember the first time I tried to do a push-up. In my mind, I thought, oh, I can do that. You know, that's something that I've done. I've done thousands of these throughout my life. And figuring out how to get down on the ground to do it, and then thinking that I could just do it, and I, I, I f my arms gave out completely, and I fell on my face, and I, I sprained my neck because <laughs> I thought I could do a push-up. I thought I could just do a push-up. And you know, taking weeks and months to be able to finally just lower myself down slow enough and then get to where I could do one and then I could do two and then I could do two several times a day and then eventually work up to where I could do 10 and 20 and 30 and, you know, and same thing with pull-ups and same thing with sit-ups and same thing with just, just these basic, you know, functional movements. And, um, and then getting to the point where I could, I could cycle, I could ride my bike, but initially I couldn't go fast enough to not fall over. <laughs> and so and so I had to eventually build up the strength on a stationary bike to where I could generate yep. enough power to stay upright. Um, and then, you know, right now, uh, as, of, as of yesterday, before the race, well, I guess at New York, um, I knew I wouldn't be able to run any of that. I knew I couldn't run. I, I had tried to run, but my... I'd spent so much time on my back that uh, because your ankles and your knees and your hips are all weight-bearing joints, um, I'd lost the ability to um, 
to bear that weight through all those joints. And so um, I had to slowly build back up the muscle, you know, on, on each side of those joints so that I could be able to... Um, Just handle the demands of it. Yeah, active stability rather than passive stability. Right. So, so muscular stability rather than like ligaments and bones just banging into each other. And um, so I knew that New York would be just walking because I I couldn't run yet. And uh, between New York and now, I, I've I've gotten to where I I have a daily routine where I, I get up and for an hour I go out and. I'll run, and when I say run, it's 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 a shuffle. It's it's not much faster than walking, but it's just a little bit of a change in dynamics or in in mechanics. And I'll go for thirty seconds, and then I I I walk for thirty seconds, and I'll just go back and forth, you know, thirty seconds on, thirty seconds off, for an hour, and um, and then I'll get home, and then um, I I take the girls to school. I I ride with them um, with their bikes and and drop them off at school and then I go out for uh, a bike ride every day and and during that time is when I do all my work like that's when I do my meetings I'll, I'm usually on the phone um, not texting on the phone but just if I have phone calls or whatever that's that's when I do that and uh, if I need to send an email I'll stop you know and I'll, I'll send off a message and and that's that's kind of how I that's how I I spend my mornings working um, is on my bike and then as soon as I get off the bike, I'll go out for another hour of walking and running. And, um, and based on, you know, whatever's going on in the day, if I have time in the evening again, I'll go out again. And, um, so it's a lot of volume. It's a lot of really low intensity volume, but, um, that's kind of all I'm able to do up to this point. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I hope, I think that, you know, down the road, I'll be able to lengthen out those intervals to where, Instead of running for 30 seconds, I'll be able to run for maybe 40 seconds eventually and um, increase the running intervals and decrease the, the walking intervals. And, and, you know, maybe eventually I can run for a couple of minutes continuously. I think a couple of times in the marathon there at the tail end, I maybe ran for two minutes or two and a half minutes at a time. But I was going to say, you had um, to have been running for longer stretches because just looking at your pace per mile, it was getting down into like the 11, 12-minute range, which it wasn't there earlier in the race. And I'm like, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I think that was the furthest, the furthest I've ever run. And I don't mean the 26 miles. I mean, you know, the two right. two-minute intervals or two-and-a-half-minute intervals. That, that's the furthest I've run since... Um, since all of this and it's a different it's a shuffle i mean it's it's even like a a modified ultra runner shuffle you know it's a it's definitely the force is coming up you know through my knees and up and i'm i'm supporting it in my in my hips and in my glutes rather than in my quads and in my hamstrings um i think that's the next step uh i've been trying to do a lot of um lower leg strengthening exercises to to be able to have the ability to to bear all of my weight on one leg, I still can't do that. I mean, if I were to try to do like a, a pistol squat right now, like I'd I'd just collapse onto the ground. And so, um, yeah, but one step at a time, man. I mean, you've right. come such yeah. a long way already. I mean, just looking at you across from me, sitting in your bed and thinking about what you were just describing to me a few minutes ago, sitting up for thirty seconds and having it be the most terrifying feeling in the world. I'm like. Holy shit. Yeah. Like that's pretty remarkable in and of itself. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is. I mean, when I think back on it, I, I, um, part of the, <laughs> I guess maybe one of the benefits, uh, it's, it's difficult at times as well, but my, my memory is really, really bad since all of, all of this happened. And mm-hmm. a lot of the, the memories that I had from the last several years are just, just gone. I mean, completely corrupted. I'll, I'll see a photo of myself with somebody else and I don't know who they are and I don't know where it's from and things like that. And, um, and my ability to retain things now uh, is still really difficult. Uh, my brain works a lot different than it used to. And is that mostly a result of the coma? I think so. Being I, out I of think, it for so long. I think so many weeks and months without enough oxygen um, mm. <laughs> just did irreparable brain damage. And um, and I don't know if I'll ever get that back. And and it's fine. I mean, it's I'm learning how to how to work with it. But but part of that is that I. I don't remember a lot. Mm-hmm. And so it takes a lot of effort to think back, okay, what did a year ago look like? Mm-hmm. Um, what did, you know, four months ago look like? And, and I try to write as a way to, um, to help myself um, take note of what's happening in the moment so that I can, it can help me to create memories, but also as a way to look back and see where I was. And the progress is so slow that, it can become daunting at times if I don't see uh, progress. And uh, I mean, that really is what, <laughs> you know, these races are for, is that it, it's, it's an honest on-paper assessment of, of where I am. And, you know, you can't fake a marathon. You, you have to, it takes whatever you have on that day. And um, it's hard to, to finish one and have a whole lot left in the tank, you know. And so, um, I mean, that's kind of... It's kind of what my intention is with doing these. And now, um, looking forward, uh, if I'm being honest with myself as to what my, what my goals are, you know, what my aspirations are, what my intention is in doing all of this, it's, I don't have any, <laughs> spoiler alert, I don't have any intention of ever racing again. I, I don't know if that's a reality. I, it doesn't really matter to me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be awesome. I mean, it's it's really fun to run fast, but there are lots of other <laughs> incredible aspects of life that have nothing to do with running fast. And that when you're not spending all of your energy trying to run fast, you have a lot of energy to do a lot of other really cool things, you know. And and so exploring that, um, those aspects of life have been have been really cool. And uh, also. Um, I, I guess what what does motivate me moving forward is I feel almost as though I have a a moral obligation to as a way of um, giving back to the nurses and the doctors and all of those that the tens of thousands of people that supported me and and have quite literally made it possible for me to still be here. Um, I feel as though I have this, um, (laughs) this moral obligation to, to be the fittest version of myself that I can, you know, to see what, what is possible for somebody that, that was on ECMO, you know, like a, the, the device that kept me alive for, I think it was over 60 days where a machine was breathing for me. And, um, 
and then while you know receiving chemo at the same time um there's not a lot of i don't know if there's been many occasions when that's ever happened before um and that wasn't something i did that was something that the, that the team um that decided to take me um chose to do and because i survived that um there's not a lot known as to what recovery looks like for somebody that's been in that situation and so i feel as though it's my obligation to explore that you know to see what what lies out there on <laughs> the ragged edges of of <laughs> i guess my own new human potential within this new life within this new body and uh as a way to i guess um for anybody else that ends up in a situation like that to see what maybe is possible if they dedicate their whole <laughs> their whole soul to chasing that you know and uh and knowing <laughs> having spent a lifetime trying to do that knowing that it is a slow steady consistent gradual process and uh you know you can't force it it's it's something that you've got to just slowly build over you know weeks and months and years and um i don't know i don't know what's what's uh what's possible you know but i'm i'm hoping to explore that you know and uh to be open and honest about it as as i experience it and have you thought about how you'll go about doing that like what those mechanisms will be or pursuits I, you know, um, you just pick something else off on the horizon and, uh, and whether it's a, a bigger, I think the next step is trying to see if I can make it all the way to, oh gosh, I haven't run a mile without stopping since then. You know, I haven't run more than a minute, I, I guess yesterday, a couple of minutes at a time, but, um, being able to run a mile without stopping and then maybe eventually being able to run a marathon without stopping mm -hmm. and, uh, once I'm able to do that, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's longer distance or maybe it's a more challenging course, or maybe it's, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe I'll do an Ironman again someday, something like that, you know, something to just to explore something more difficult or, you know, try to, try to do it faster, try to do it better. But. What's it been like being a beginner again? Because as you just described, I mean, you started from about as scratch as one could be like literally just sitting up out of bed to finishing the Boston Marathon yeah. yesterday to now seeing what else might be possible. So along the way, I mean, you've, you know, you've done all these things from like just sitting up for 30 seconds at a time, taking a step, walking a mile, running a minute, whatever, yeah. you know, whatever, whatever it may be like, you know, yeah, there, there's, you know, an obvious like pain that you might feel like in your body from that that stress but like when you actually like do it and you're like shit i just did that yeah. like what does that do for you like in your you know in your brain and just like in your you know in your spirit to realize like i couldn't do that a week ago a month ago whatever it is and, and now i now i could um <laughs> it makes me cry a lot i mean i'll i'll be out um running or running i say running but you know that shuffle that back and forth walk jog shuffle uh or cycling and, and there will be a breakthrough and it usually happens maybe once a month I'll, I'll i'll notice something has changed you know and i um 
it's it's just gratitude. I I felt it yesterday after the it started to sink in about the the halfway mark of the marathon. I started to feel that old familiar um burning feeling in my quads. Yeah. Where you can sense that the muscle fibers are starting to tear a little bit and you're you're gonna feel it. And uh were you just as happy as could be? Gosh, I mean, it was something that in the past that was just like, that was the worst feeling that you could experience early on in a race because you knew what was to come. Right. And as it happened, I, I couldn't help but um, just cry because I, <laughs> it was so good to feel it again. You got to feel it again. Yeah, and to, um, to know that the reason it was happening is because I, myself was generating that that effort and um you know obviously that's not the goal um and understanding how our bodies work and understanding how you know you you don't uh progress doesn't happen because of these heroic efforts that we put in in a single day you know it's right. it's spreading out that effort consistently over you know <laughs> weeks and months and years and, and a lifetime really. And, um, you know, I think that that's also, you know, you, you asked what it's like to be a beginner again. Um, it's fun because in my, all of the things that I've learned over a lifetime of, of, um, you know, the things that you learn about consistency and, and hard work and, and progress and growth um, and what really matters, you know, the factors that actually matter. Um, you know, you know this as a coach that it's like people put so much emphasis on things that have such <laughs> minuscule effect, yeah. on, you know, on, on their outcome on a race day or even in their training. You know, everybody's looking for a secret. Everybody's looking for well, what's the special workout, what's the special supplement, what's, what are the pros doing that are all the secrets. And it's like there, there aren't any secrets. You know, it's, it's hard work. It's consistent. Um, I mean, there's a process and it's a deliberate process and you, and you go through the work, but there aren't, there aren't shortcuts and there aren't um, these magic formulas that are any more complicated than stress plus rest times consistency equals success. I mean, that's the only math you need. I mean, it's, it's very, very simple. And knowing all of that um, and having retained that, I guess, experience and that, that understanding of of growth and um, and an understanding of you know physiology and coaching principles and philosophies and applying that to a new body it's it's like it's like being my own coach but just with with a brand new body and um, you know hopefully I won't make the same kind of errors that I made the first three decades of my life you know when when pain starts to whisper, you know, hopefully I, I pay attention to that before it screams, you know, and mm -hmm. so that I can avoid all these unexpected detours that, you know, you experience as an immature runner or, you know, as you're trying to, when you don't have the confidence to listen to your body and take, you know, easy days. And, yeah. um, so all of that is stuff that I've, I've still maintained. And, um, you know, it's been a year and a half that I've been, at this, uh, 
I guess, this new mission to kind of reclaim my body. Um, but a year and a half without an injury, that's a long time, you know, for runners. Yeah. And, uh, so that's something I'm proud of, you know. I, I guess one of my goals is to never have another overuse injury again. And, I mean, there, there's stuff that happens like getting hit by a car, like crashing downstairs or things like that that are stupid injuries, but they're not as stupid as an overuse injury, you know, because it happens because you're, you're careless in one moment rather than because you're deliberately not listening to your body over days mm -hmm. and weeks and months, you know. And so hopefully that's something I can avoid going forward. And um, Yeah, I don't know. We'll just see where, where it takes me. But <laughs> Take a little bit of a pivot here. I mean, your story when you first got sick in July 2020 or started making that public and then finding out that you had this rare and aggressive form of lymphoma, you were going to be in a coma, it got a lot of attention. And you were fairly well known as an athlete before that. I mean, you've competed at a high level. You did a lot through iFit, built community, kind of around that. Like, you were a pretty recognizable person. And with everything that you've gone through, your profile, for lack of a, a better word, has really been just elevated. Um, more people became aware of your story. They became supportive of you and your family. They're curious about you know, how you're doing. And with that has just come increased attention. Um, anytime, you know, you would put up a post on Instagram or Steph would put up a post on Instagram or Jacob would put up a post on Instagram. I mean, it would, it, it would like go crazy. People are, you know, leaving comments and, you know, sharing. And there's, there's something really like beautiful about that. And I'm sure it feels good to know, like all these people, you know, care about me and they care about my family and want to see me and, and us do well. But I imagine as well, like it can also become a bit overwhelming. Um, people who want, you know, your, your time, which I feel really grateful for right now. And, you know, just having to be a, a, a more recognizable public figure. Um, how has that been for you just over the last six to 12 months that you've been regaining strength and getting back to normal life and traveling around a little bit more and generally just being a, a bit more accessible. Like, has that been tricky for you to, to navigate? Um, I don't think anybody wants to be defined by something that they didn't do. Um, do you know like Harry Potter, how he's like an awkward character because he's <laughs> he's the boy who lived? He didn't actually do anything. He just didn't die when he was supposed to. Um, it, it feels like that sometimes, you know, that um, you spend an entire life trying to accomplish certain things and um, trying to... I guess, gosh, I just compared myself to Harry Potter. <laughs> I don't mean to do that. But, but that part of it, you know, that it's just awkward, that people, people, people want to recognize you for something that you did when in reality it's, it was nothing that I did. I mean, it was 
I didn't save my life. I mean, if it would have been me, I would have died in my basement and refused to go to the hospital. Um, Steph saved my life initially. Steph <laughs> um, quite literally forced me into the car and took me to the hospital after days and days of me telling her that I was fine. And that once I got there, um, you know, the, the medical team did everything that they could with the resources that they had at that hospital, um, with the additional um, demands that were put on that staff because of the pandemic and specifically Flagstaff being such a hot spot um, during the pandemic and limited resources and limited manpower and um, and then Steph and then, you know, members of my family and members of the IFIT community and, and just strangers um, that just, not strangers, but just people that, that knew my family or knew about this whole situation through social media and getting in contact with a team that was willing to, to take me and then finding a team that was willing to really put their reputations on the line and try some treatments that, that were not seen as viable options at the time. Um, in some cases seen as ethically not okay to do, um, consider, considering the limited resources and the limited mm -hmm. amount of hospital bed and staff that there was at the time. Um, it really was this, if there were heroic efforts, it was, it was heroic efforts by, by those individuals, um, starting with my family and the, and the community. And then that, uh, that team of healthcare professionals, and then extending out beyond to the thousands of people that that supported me um but they did all of that everybody everybody did all of that i was the i was the beneficiary of that i was the one that received that love and that um that care and that treatment and 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 all of all of that collective um support and strength and effort and prayers and love and energy and anything that you want to call it. I, I was the recipient of that. I wasn't the one that created that. And I, I was somebody who happened to be lucky to survive all of that, but it wasn't because of anything that I did. Mm -hmm. I mean, people, I, I, I've, it's been somewhat of a, an uncomfortable uh, topic since then when, when people say, well, no, but, you know, had you not been an endurance athlete, you wouldn't have had the ability to, um, your body wouldn't have had the ability to, to do this, you know, um, as though it was something that I did, as though it was my, my resolve, my character, my strength or something that, that made, that was the determining factor in, in the fact that I, that I'm still alive, that I didn't die yet, um, as though there was... I possess the missing piece or the knowledge or the, the strength or the grit or the resolve. Um, and that's <laughs> that for anybody that's been in that situation, that that's a highly offensive, um, implication. Um, my, my grandpa, um, I never met him. He, he died. When my dad was 12 um, from cancer. Um, 
my grandma on my dad's side, um, who I did know, she, she had lymphoma um, for over a decade. And she eventually died from that. Um, Steph's dad, uh, he had lung cancer when she was 14. And, and he died. Um, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones, but it's not because of something I did. I didn't possess anything that they didn't also possess. Um, a lot of people get cancer, and some of them live and some of them die. Um, but it's not because of how hard they fought, you know? Um, I don't possess and didn't possess anything different than my grandpa and grandma. Um, or Steph's dad, or anybody else that's um, that's died from from cancer. Um, <laughs> and the people that survived didn't survive because they, you know, were stronger than the people who didn't. You know, everybody loses in that battle. Um, some people live and some people die, but everyone everyone loses and. Uh, and so that's been that's been a difficult topic to navigate, yeah. um, because people want to make people need heroes, you know. People need these these champions, and um, you know that's not new. That's all over. That's what every book and every song, and you know, it's it's all about that kind of thing. People need something to look forward to, to be inspired by, and so we put that on an individual as though something that they did or something that they had is that missing factor and that it's that missing piece and if only you can identify that then you know you'll be able to do the same and the truth is that no i mean it it could come back anytime and if and when it comes back i have just the same chance as i had before which was not good you know and uh um if and when i survive if and when that happens it won't be because anything that i did um you know working my way back to this point um there were some things in that journey in that struggle that have been within my control a lot of it hasn't been within my control um being able to determine the things that are within our control and the things that lie without our control is i think is a really important way of making sure that we allocate the limited amount of energy that we have towards the things that actually mm -hmm. make a difference but um but in terms of those critical months where I was receiving treatment, that was, that was an incredibly brilliant um, team of healthcare professionals that worked tirelessly and brilliantly with some incredible technology and an obscene amount of resources that were pumped into, into all of that, which I acknowledge is an incredibly privileged situation to be in. And, um, and that's part of where this motivation comes from to not piss that away, you know, to, to recognize how incredibly lucky I was and also how fortunate and privileged I was to be in that situation. And so I have to do something with that. I can't just sit and drink my ties the rest of my life and just, you know, live the good life or whatever that means, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have to do something with that. There's a debt that I owe to... <laughs> to the team that kept me here, the people that kept me here, my family that kept me here, to Steph, to my girls, to the 
but also to the people that aren't as lucky, you know, the people that that didn't make it through. And, you know, to the family members of the individuals who, who've lost loved ones, fighting the exact same battle and just having, being dealt uh, worse cards than me, you know? And uh, <laughs> that was kind of a roundabout way, but, but yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting place that I don't think anybody ever wants to be. It's a situation that nobody wants to be put in where mm -hmm. you're known as being a survivor. You know, what does that mean? Um, because... Um, <laughs> some people live and some people die, but the idea of surviving, um, everybody's still a victim, you know? I don't mean that in the sense of having a victim complex, but just it's, um, it's a trauma, it's an assault, it's, um, it's an abuse of your mind and your heart and your body and uh, the disease, but, is, but also the treatment, you know? And uh, it's something that you would love to forget about and never, never think about again and uh, move past all of that. For some reason, it's one of those traumas, though, that um, if you are one of the lucky ones to make it through, there is this debt that you owe back as a survivor, I guess, if that's what people call it, um, to those that, that weren't as so fortunate, they weren't so lucky. And... So you've got to do something with that, you know? Um, I, just to pivot back to, you know, I guess how social media has uh, an impact on that. I, people that make a, a living as professional endurance athletes, um, they're very few and far between. I mean, the amount of, the percentage of individuals who claim that they're a professional athlete that are purely making a living based off of racing and training. I mean, that's, that's just a it's few. tiny. That's, that's, I mean, there's a handful. Um, I think it was Tim Tollefson. Um, he said it years ago, and it stuck with me. I think it was him. He said that, that, <laughs> that we don't get paid to run. We get paid to tell a story about running. And that's, especially in the age of social media, that's, that's what it is, you mm -hmm. know? Um, sharing the experience and being able to communicate um, and to try to convey to others that experience. That's what, if social media serves any positive um, role in, <laughs> in our lives, um, I think that that's it, you know, being able to be open about uh, the highs and lows and, um, and if people can take something from that and use it in a in a positive application to their own lives, then I then I think it it can be a you know a beneficial tool. Um, I gosh, I, I don't think about it at this point. I I uh, I'd love to <laughs> disappear into a John Steinbeck book somewhere and and. Uh, <laughs> And just go have, live off the fat of the land and have, you know, a simple life with my girls and <laughs> some land and some animals and never look at a phone again for the rest of my life, you know. But um, that's not the world that I live in um, yet. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, for now, I, I'll keep trying to just uh, use it as a way, first of all, to reflect on where I am individually. Um, writing has always been something that's helped me do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I share some of what I write. Um, I'm not a writer. I'm a journaler. You know, I've... I've always written in a journal, and that's that's what this is. I mean, I, I sometimes share what I'm thinking. I, I write every day, um, and sometimes I share it, and that's what that is. And I'm writing for me, though. I'm not ever writing for anybody else. It's um, If it sounds like I'm speaking to somebody, it's a dialogue that I'm having in my own head, and I'm speaking to – it's a pep talk to myself. And um, And if I share it and somebody thinks that I'm speaking to them, then, you know, that's great if they want to apply it to whatever they're going through as well. But um, it's always just an inner, <laughs> it's not even a monologue, it's a dialogue, you know, mm -hmm. between like the two different versions of myself, the one that wants to stay in bed and the one that knows that I need to get up and do something. But In the time that we have left here, I want to talk to you about relationships and a few different ones that you have in your life, some with very specific people, but others that are maybe a little more abstract. And the first is with your wife, Steph. She has been by your side, not only through all of this, but just all the time that you've known together. You have this beautiful family. I'm interested in how your relationship with her has changed or evolved since July of 2020. Like you just mentioned a little while ago, if it weren't for her, you wouldn't have went to the hospital to begin with. And I, you know, I, I have a very like similar wife where like I, there, there are things that like, if she didn't kick me in the pants, like I wouldn't go do it. And, you know, in, in retrospect, I'm like, Oh, glad you did that. Like, you know, for me, but as you've gone through what you have gone through and, you know, she has been the point person for, for, for all of it, really. Um, I'm interested in, like, as you've started just regaining strength and getting back to living your life with her and, and with your family, like, have things changed? Have things evolved from, you know, the, the BC times as you described them earlier? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so Steph and I, I've known Steph for, gosh, this is where my memory is going to get me in trouble, but I think it's been 15 years or so. Um, and, uh, you know, when Steph and I met, we were both wildly independent. Um, I guess fiercely independent is probably a better <laughs> adjective, but... Um, both independent, both really driven, uh, both really different interests. Um, and we fell in love and built a life together. Um, and it's been a, I mean, really growing up together. We met young. I mean, I, I think she was 21 and I was... 22 or 23 um and we were going to school both of us we were out in hawaii we were both <laughs> um pretty non-conformist 
just kind of roamers and uh, had spent um, a lot of time before that um, just wandering and um, trying to figure out what we wanted to do and trying to find direction. And um, I wanted to be an athlete and she wanted to be a writer. And uh, so she got pregnant um, the same week that she found out that she'd been accepted into this prestigious grad school program um, at the United Nations University in, it was in Costa Rica, um, to study media, peace, and conflict. Um, so conflict studies and, and specifically journalism um, through a conflict lens and a mediation type lens. Um, and so I still had a couple of years uh, in my undergrad. <laughs> Just for context, it took me like seven years to finish my undergrad. So, <laughs> um, so I had a few years left. So we took a, I took a year off school and, and we moved down to Central America. And I got to be the stay-at-home dad for that first year. Um, our first daughter, Harper, was born down there. And... Uh, I didn't know how to be a parent, um, and so I just kept uh, trying to just live life and just took her along with me. And um, you know, she started to grow up, and I didn't want to grow up. And <laughs> we met kind of somewhere in the middle. And um, so she was my little adventure buddy from the time uh, you know she was a baby, and. Um, and quite literally grew up in the jungle and um you know i'd throw on a, on a backpack and we'd go up and and spend the days in the trails and playing with bugs and snakes and stuff like that and um and steph worked incredibly hard uh in grad school and um she got her master's degree and uh you know, came back to where we were living at the time in hawaii and and she started to teach at the university and um and then I started to go back to school again and, uh, you know, fast forward and um, a couple more little girls arrive. And so eventually we've got three and we're living in Flagstaff and I'm going to grad school and we're both, um, you know, we <clears throat> both graduated from college. Oh, I don't know. I think we had a combination of I think five college degrees between the two of us and we were both waiting tables at a restaurant and uh living the glamorous life of a professional endurance athlete, you know, <laughs> which which basically means you you get uh you get free socks and shoes and um a lot of <laughs> a lot of granola bars and I hate know. to interrupt you, but this is when she had a blog too. Yeah. Yeah. It was like wife of an endurance. I remember reading it. Yeah. And I mean, the the first thing that struck me was just how incredible of a, a writer she, I mean, was still is, yeah. um, and that's only gotten better. But yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear you describe that. So I remember reading about it yeah. all those years ago. So I mean, she would, um, she'd be working, you know, as a server waiting tables, and and Flagstaff's a college town, and and people would say. Oh, so you know what are you studying? And she's like, Oh, I'm I'm actually not. And they're like, Well, do you think were you hoping someday to go to college? And her response was like, Honey, I've taught college, <laughs> you know. And uh, 
I mean, she so much. Um, I mean, no ego, just humility, you know, and uh, and just willing to support me to to finish up grad school and uh, and to chase this wild dream to you know try to be an endurance athlete and uh, and working together. You know, we we would we figured out a way that um, I'd wake up really early. I mean, hours before the sun came up, and I'd go out and try to do as much of my training as I could um, before everybody else woke up and, uh, you know, trying to work different jobs at the same time. And then um, she'd be home with the girls and then I'd get home and then she'd go out and she'd write. And um, I think of it as like, a, I mean, really quite literally like life partners, you know, like a, a team and mm -hmm. uh, decided to build a home together and to have that home be a place of love for our girls and um but to support each other you know in in whatever it is that we each individually and collectively you know wanted to wanted to pursue and accomplish and um our relationship has always been a lot more about uh like a a nest you know like a home uh that a place that you feel love and supported and um a lot less like well a lot more like a nest and and wings and a lot less like a cage and uh, a leash if that makes sense yeah. you know trying to support one another in 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 our different goals and um you know things that uh things that we wanted to dedicate our life to, you know, and Steph has always been, Steph has always, um, you know, like asking like, okay, like how, how Steph's writing has emerged or how, you know, like the, the story that she, she was willing to share, how that is something new. Um, this has always been Steph though. I mean, Steph hasn't changed. And so, you know, in, in the sense of how has our relationship changed in the last year and a half, um, this has always been Steph. I mean, Steph has always been a great writer and Steph has always had the ability to, to articulate and communicate this universal human experience that, that we all, ex that we all go through. And that, that range of human experiences, the, the grief and the heartache and the, the struggles as well as like the triumphs and the potential and the greatness that we that we all have. Uh, the reason that people resonate with the things that she says is that she has the ability to bridge that mm -hmm. chasm of humanity, and um, and she's always been able to do that. And anybody that knows Steph has always known that about her. The people that know her well know that about her. Uh, that's why people love her so much is because she, the way she writes and the things that she conveys in her writing, are just a reflection of who she is as a person and um and in the you know people read the things that she writes and they feel safe they feel seen they feel they feel strengthened they feel as though they get a glimpse of their own potential and that's the same way that people feel who have the opportunity to interact with Steph on a personal basis that's that's who she is you know that's who she's always been um the last couple of years has put a spotlight on that, I guess. Um, but nothing has changed. I mean, she's always been that person. And 
Um, well, just that unwavering support as well. I mean, in the BC times yeah. when you were going to grad school, pursuing yep. your doctorate in physical therapy, also trying to be an endurance athlete, you just described, she was unwavering in her support of that. Someone yeah. with like incredible degrees herself waiting tables so yeah. that you could realize, you know, your dream. Yeah. Um, and then when, you know, you were laying in a hospital bed or in a coma, I mean, that's, she was just doing the same thing, just in a different way. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, she, that, that's yeah. really beautiful, man. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, talk about consistency. Yeah. And selflessness and, uh, and, also, like, it's one thing to know something and to experience something emotionally, but it's another thing to experience it empirically. Like, the way that she carried the load of understanding the diagnosis, understanding the prognosis, understanding the treatment, understanding how bleak, you know, the probabilities were. Um, and never communicating to me anything other than, but you're going to survive. And, um, if I can interject here, yeah, before you went into the medically induced coma, is it true she wrote you a note that just said, Stay alive, love Steph? <laughs> I read that somewhere, <laughs> it said. Um, stay the f alive, but yeah, yeah, that's what it said. I uh, I found it in my um, in my suitcase at the hospital. Um, yeah, and that was the only <laughs> the only demand that she um, she ever put on me. That was it. Um, <laughs> no pressure, but <laughs> uh, yeah, um, she said that you know, she couldn't do this alone. And so that, that was the thing that, um, or didn't want to do this alone. So that was, that was what was left up to me. And, um, but she did the rest, you know, I mean, the, from carrying the, the weight of that full knowledge of everything that the treatment entailed and, and, um, you know, the likelihoods and probabilities of, of outcomes to, I mean, finding the team and finding the nurses and finding, you know, and pushing and advocating. And, and uh, it was a pandemic, so you weren't supposed to be able to have visitors in the, in the hospital. Um, I don't know what it, I don't know what cancer treatment is like as an inpatient with visitors. I mean, there, there were never visitors allowed. And so that's an incredibly isolating um lonely solitary time um the only interaction you have is with your your nurses who are just angels i mean that just um talk you through the night talk you through your delirium talk you through your nightmares um and the physicians that uh same thing you know they just literally sit there and hold your hand while you cry together and um but steph was able to come in during you know limited hours and but she was there every single day during all of those hours. And, and our 
you know, both of our moms came out and stayed with our girls um, who were being homeschooled at the time because of the pandemic. I mean, it was a, so many things going on at yeah. once that, that made it possible for her to be able to be there to to be able to do that. I mean, so many people just picking up the slack where it showed up. And then just, I mean, our, our close friends and then our family and then so many just, I mean, absolute strangers that just showed up and just, um, did so much to support us uh, in every way that you could imagine. And um, But then after, you know, you're sent home and you're supposed to just figure out how to do it, and you go from having around-the-clock, impatient, um, monitoring, you're hooked up to machines, you're receiving medication every hour on the hour, and then you're just released and you go home, and you're just supposed to check in once a month, you know, or I, I guess initially it's every, every week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that, that treatment, um, at home, like medication, you know, alarms set multiple times a day and, um, you know, Steph's taking care of me. She basically becomes my, <laughs> my, my caretaker. And, um, and so we were together really every moment um, of every day after that. And I remember the first time I had to go into an appointment and because of the pandemic, she wasn't able to come in. And there was just this panic, like this separation anxiety that I'd, I'd never experienced before because it was like, I was like, I don't, I don't know how I'm supposed to do this if you're not with Without me. her. I yeah. don't know the answers. I don't, you know, I don't know the answers to the questions that the that the nurses and the doctors are asking me, I have no idea what my medication is. I have no idea what any of this is, you know? And so she carried all of that, you know, that, that knowledge, but also that emotional, um, load. And, uh, at the same time, she was, um, she was aware of everybody that had done so much for us. I mean, I was, um, I was unconscious for so much of it, but I was also unaware of everything else that was going on outside, you know, the, the community that had come together and had supported us. Um, I wasn't, you know, paying attention to what was going on, um, in that, in that, I guess that sphere. And, and so with that knowledge, um, gratitude, overwhelming gratitude that you know that you'll never be able to pay back, to reciprocate to the people that have done so much for you. Um, it eventually, it can become burdensome, you know, and it can be, it can be heavy to carry that gratitude. And, I was wondering about that. Yeah. And, um, it's like a guilt almost. It shifts from gratitude to guilt. If you can't, if there's nothing that you can do to, and I know that people don't, people would say, oh, no, 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 you shouldn't feel that way. But you right. do, you know, you, you, if there's, um, if you're the beneficiary of so much and there's never any way that you can possibly repay that, um, it can become burdensome. I mean, it does, it does sometimes start to feel like guilt. And, uh, and so on top of all of just, you know, the knowledge, the understanding, the emotional burden of, caring for you know your partner but also you've got three three girls at home you're homeschooling you're i mean 
It's a lot of weight. It's hard to imagine how it could be um, more difficult than that, you know? And at the same time, you know, obviously, like, the fact that we live in a place where we're blessed with these healthcare professionals and this technology and these resources, and, you know, we're in a country that's, <laughs> for the most part, peaceful, you know? Um, it's stable. It's... We've got it really good compared to so many people throughout the world. Um, but at the same time, you know, you throw those burdens in there and it becomes, you throw those struggles in there and it becomes, it becomes incredibly burdensome. And, um, and she carried all of that. I mean, when people would ask like, hey, how do you balance your work and life and your school and your training? You know, my my honest response was like, I don't balance it. I I put in the work and Steph balances all of it, you know, and, and which is, which is such a heavier, you know, lift. And, um, and I hope that, you know, I, that I'm able to, to reciprocate that, you know, and, um, and that she feels as though I support her as well, you know, in the things that she wants to do. And, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, this has been just the most, um, just selfless, most loving, uh, just demonstration of just pure love and service that I've, <laughs> I've ever seen, you know? And, uh, and the fact that she's been willing to share that with, the rest of the world through a writing, you know, um, it's, uh, well, I can speak for the rest of the world. It's an incredible gift. I mean, it, it really is. I mean, not knowing you that well, not knowing her at all, but observing this from the outside. And I'm personally not on social media anymore. Your brother, Jacob would send me updates that various people would post. I'd go on my wife's Instagram account. She would show me things that Steph had wrote and it, Really, and I know this wasn't the intention behind it, but it made me want to be a better partner, made my wife want to be a better partner for us to have a stronger relationship to kind of emulate that because that's what a a, a partnership, a team should look like. That's what it's about. It's that unwavering support. It's not complaining despite having the weight of the world like literally on your shoulders and just you know finding a way to get through the next day and, and I, it was really it's really beautiful I mean it, it really is you know it really is beautiful and like you said you don't write for anyone but yourself I imagine Steph is probably in a in a similar boat but you do graciously share this publicly and we see ourselves in that as fellow human beings. And I want to thank you both for that. Um, because it's, as I just said, like speaking for myself and I, I know many others, it's made me want to be and helped me to be a, a better partner myself. Um, but just a, I hope, I think a better human being living in the world. Yeah. It's, it's been, um, seeing her, the way that she's she's loved me and supported me through all of this like has been um it's the same thing i mean same 
same thing as you as you mentioned it it, it makes it makes anybody want to to be to be better um you know like the uh giddy blissful aspects of love i mean that's the that's the easy part mm-hmm. like falling in love with somebody being in love with somebody having like a romantic connection with somebody like that's not that's not the difficult aspect of love you know or of life or of being a partner but when when your world falls apart and you've got to continue to keep things afloat um that's when you see yeah you're taking on water and your sails are ripping and you're in a storm and and you're somehow keeping everything from going under you know i mean that's that's where it is that's what it is and you know you hope that nobody ever has to experience that but everybody will at some point in some capacity and um and that's what's real i mean that's what's um that's what uh you hope for you know when your world does fall apart you know who's there to help (laughs) i like that you guys look at it as a team and we both come from that background where we've run on cross-country teams and you always say like what more could you want in a teammate and i I think of that you know with your relationship with stuff i think of that with my relationship with my own wife and and this helped me to see it you ask what more what more could i want in a teammate than for someone who you know isn't going to be there just when we're like you know when we're winning when you know we're we're all smiling and happy afterward but when things start to go to shit um and you know you really question if you can move forward or if it's if it's wise to move forward and they're like no let's just let's take that next step together um they pick you up when you're down i mean that's again like i've said this a million times this conversation but that's what it's about you know yeah i feel like there are just so many examples of that and the stories that you've shared well you i you know like one of the things that i love about endurance athletics these long well it's one of the things i miss about it are these long these long um you know multiple hour events where you go out with somebody that you've you've never even met before but by the end of whatever that challenge is. I think about like crossing the Grand Canyon and coming back together, you know, and you meet up with a bunch of people that maybe you've, you've never met before and you spend the next 12 hours together. And, and you know, those people so well, because not because you've seen them at their best, but because you've seen them at At their their worst, worst. like in the lowest, there's no way that you can, you know, (laughs) accomplish a feat like that without going to the absolute like depths of your soul and and potentially seeing the very very worst of of anybody and um you know that (laughs) that's what this has been like like you see it's not in the blissful times it's not in the happy easy like carefree moments that um that someone's character you know shows it's it's when the whole world falls apart and when you're you're left with um just pieces and uh you know what what settles or i guess what rises up in that during that time you know um but yeah i mean this is again this is new this is this is not anything new for anybody that's known Steph. this is who Steph is this is who Steph has been her entire life and mm-hmm. um and in large part i think that um a lot of what she learned about how to love and care for was from watching her own mom do the same thing with her dad with her dad when yeah. she was young and um 
Yeah, it's the same fight. I mean, it's the same struggle. And he didn't survive. Um, I did. Uh, it's just a flip of a coin, you know. But anyway, yeah, I'm sure grateful to have her with me. The other relationship I'm interested in learning more about from you is the one that you have with death. You have stared it right in the face. And maybe now it's not directly in front of your face. It's backed off a little bit for the time being. But to the degree that you're comfortable with, what's that relationship been like for you over the last year and a half or so? Ooh, um, <laughs> it's kind of a love-hate relationship. I know that sounds kind of strange, but um, there were times when I, the darkest times when I, when I felt it um, hovering, you know, and close, and uh, to where I wondered, you know, not. <laughs> if it was going to happen, but when it was going to happen and how it was going to happen. And, um, and even if it had already happened, um, and when that's the, when that's the reality, when that's like at the forefront of your mind and, and your experience, um, you do your best to, make peace with it and um and without giving in and accepting it when i say accepting it i don't mean like oh giving up and saying you know this is just what's going to happen um but when it's so certain that (laughs) you're so far gone that it's just it's just inevitable and um you sense that it's it's there and it's just looming um you try to just uh welcome it uh rather than fight it and uh and so in that sense it in some ways feels like a loving relationship um there were times when i when i didn't think i would be able to come back and um and i wanted to go and i i uh it was beautiful and it was peaceful and it felt um like home and it felt welcoming and it felt familiar and it felt uh restful and um and then when i got pulled back i resented the fact that i was being pulled back and i i didn't want to go through the discomfort and the pain that it took to come back to whatever this is right here whatever this experience is right now um and then the further i got from that and the more determined i was and and not that i determination has anything to do with it but when i got to a point where there were things within my control you know like getting up out of bed like putting in you know sit to stand from my dead from my bed 10 times throughout the day i mean when that's all that i could muster like forcing down food because i knew that if i didn't eat i I was going to starve to death and that uh, I was the only one that could control that, you know, things like that, that determination when it became, when it became something that I had the ability to, 
to actually um, aspects that I could actually control, then it shifted and and it became still death was personified um, but I saw I saw it as um, not something but almost someone and it's easier to have a relationship with with someone than it is with something this unknown force and so i would see it as um this adversary um <laughs> cancer is a is an interesting uh disease because it it feeds off of you it's a it's a parasite i mean it um and it tethers itself to your nervous system so that it feels what you feel. Um, it feeds off of what you feed off of. Um, and in the same way that because of the way that we've evolved, we have the propensity um, to spend a lot of time eating and resting um, because we once <laughs> lived this existence that was um, an existence based on scarcity where we had to be constantly getting up, searching for food, you know, chasing down food, running from being, becoming food for somebody else. Um, and eventually, you know, hunger and fear for your life were the things that would propel you to get up and move so that because of that, you would need to then spend so much time resting and relaxing and, um, and we're still wired that way, you know? And so we're, we're hardwired to stay in bed. We're hardwired to just keep, you know, eating food. We're hardwired to not put in effort. Um, but we live in a, we live in a time where the motivation that comes in the form of hunger or fear is is so rare for us um you know to to get us up and to get us out the door to chase down something to eat or whatever um i saw i saw cancer is the same way as though when when i had the overwhelming feeling to to be sedentary um to relax um to not go out and like put in effort because it was uncomfortable. Um, I would try to shift my mentality and think about the discomfort that I was feeling through effort that, that cancer was also feeling that discomfort. And so if I would go out and I would run or I would bike or I would, you know, whatever it was, um, that effort that, that we so often try to avoid I would try to flip it as though my own body was like a, a voodoo doll and I was the one holding the pins, if that makes sense. And um, if I was feeling it, then it was also feeling it. And so, you know, drive that pin in deeper and harder and more often. And as a way of... Um, <laughs> <laughs> sounds like sounds like you're racing cancer. Like you'd be racing someone in a race, and you're like, "If I'm hurting this bad, you're going to be hurting at least this bad, if yep. if not worse." The moment that you like 
uh, realize that pain is your ally rather than your enemy and you weaponize that and you use it against your competitors and you use what it is that you personally are feeling as a gauge of what um, the pain that you're inflicting on them it's exactly the same thing so that's that's the way that I viewed it as though um, the deeper I could push myself into that state of discomfort uh, the harder I could um, push back the more effort that I could that I could um, put in um, <laughs> Not as though it would make a difference because you don't cure cancer by, you know, by running. You don't cure cancer by uh, doing push-ups. You don't cure cancer by <laughs> whatever it was that I was doing to try to inflict pain on it. Um, but by doing that, you reminded that you're still there. Yeah, it was just a, <laughs> a fuck you more than anything, you know, and. Uh, <laughs> um, Yeah, and um, not as though, I mean, not as if that made any difference or makes any difference, um, but to be able to personify that disease and, and see it as something that I was fighting against and all of the efforts that I was putting in on a daily basis uh, were having an effect on, you know, if it was uncomfortable for me, it had to be uncomfortable for it. and. Even if it killed me, I was going to make it hurt in the process, you know? And, uh, yeah, so it's love-hate. <laughs> it's kind of gone back and forth. But at the same time, like, being aware of, like, uh, there's certain things that are just completely out of your control and you just um, just kind of take it as it comes, you know? But, well, Tommy, to highlight one of the themes of this conversation i'm really grateful for it um for you for this time that we've been able to spend together today i can't thank you enough for taking the time to just share your stories share your thoughts pour yourself out to me right here but everyone listening to this so for everyone who is listening to this thank you so much for joining me on the morning shakeout podcast yeah thanks mario thanks for having me okay that's it for this episode of the morning shakeout podcast thank you so much for taking the time to listen in also a big thank you to both new balance and the wine shine half marathon and 3.9 miler for making this episode possible if you're looking for a workhorse to run most of your miles in, look no further than the Fresh Foam X 1080 V12. This shoe has the perfect blend of cushioning and responsiveness. It's lightweight, it transitions smoothly, it has the most streamlined fit to accommodate a wide variety of foot types, and it holds up to heavy mileage week in and week out. The Fresh Foam X 1080 V12 is available in both men's and women's sizes on newbalance.com or at your local run specialty retail store. The inaugural Wineshine Half Marathon and 3.9 Miler, which starts and finishes at the Silverado Resort and Spa in Napa, will be held on July 16th, 2022. Cool mornings, great running conditions. Registration is now open at wineshinehalfmarathon.org. Enter the code MARIO when you check out for $15 off your registration. 
Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He's produced every episode of the podcast and is the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. Also, thank you to my right-hand man, Chris Douglas, for handling sponsorship sales and various other duties, and Jeffrey Stern for managing the AM Shakeout social media accounts. I don't have a big team here at The Morning Shakeout, but these three guys help keep things running smoothly. Last thing, if you're digging this podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And in it, you'll get a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to lately that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.